Hello, I'm Elena DelVal, and this is the Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations HispanicNPR.com podcast. My guests today are Tiffany Fink Haynes, who is Program Manager of Pesticides and Pollinators at Friends of the Earth, and Lisa Lindsley, who is Capital Markets Advisor at Some of Us. We will discuss bee health and pollinators. Tiffany leads the organization's work to eliminate toxic pesticides and advance a sustainable and just food system to protect people, pollinators, and the planet. She leads federal, state, local policy, and marketplace campaigns aimed at reforming industrial agriculture. Prior to joining Friends of the Earth, she worked as a community health organizer at Many Languages, One Voice, running campaigns to improve equitable access to affordable, culturally and linguistically appropriate health-related information, services, and care for nail salon workers and day laborers. After getting her start on Wall Street, Lisa's 33-year career in finance has taken her from the microfinance industry to the U.S. labor movement. She has lived in Brazil, Argentina, and Mexico, and is fluent in English and Portuguese. Prior to joining some of us, Lisa was Director of Capital Strategies at the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. She led the effort to remove Jamie Diamond as the board chair of J.P. Morgan Chase, helped pass the Dodd-Frank Act, and pioneered shareholder initiatives around the American Legislative Exchange Council and human rights. Lisa left her position as a managing director at the Latin American Corporate Finance Division of Bear Stearns in 1995 to enter the microfinance field. Tiffany and Lisa, welcome. Thank you, Lena. Let's start with something really basic, and I mean really, really basic. What are we talking about when we talk about bees and pollinators? Is there a difference? Are there many kinds of bees? What are we referring to? Sure. So there are lots of different types of bees. Uh, There are honeybees, but there are also over 4,000 different types of native bees um, in just North America alone. And bees and other pollinators are critical for our food system. They're responsible for pollinating every one and three bites of food we eat. Things like almonds, squash, cucumbers, apples, oranges, blueberries, peaches. And they contribute as much as $20 billion to the U.S. economy and as much as $217 billion to the global economy. Unfortunately, they're dying at alarming rates, and it's a, which is a really critical and important issue because if we lose bees and other pollinators, we lose all of those delicious and nutritious foods that we all love to eat. So when we say that the, they're pollinators, are all 4,000 of the native bees in North America, are they all pollinators? Yes, they are all different types of pollinators. And not just bees, there are other types of pollinators too. So bats are pollinators, butterflies are pollinators, birds are pollinators. So there are all different types of species that are pollinator species. Are the honeybees also pollinators? Yes, they are also pollinators. And so for purposes of today's discussion, we are talking about bees, including honeybees, and the other pollinators, which includes, as you said, bats and butterflies, etc. Yes, exactly. Okay. So why are we talking about bee health? Well, as I mentioned, bees are responsible for every one in three bites of food we eat, but they're dying at alarming rates. So honeybees in particular... Beekeepers have reported over the last decade that they have lost an average of 40% of their hives. A lot of beekeepers have lost 50, 60, as much as 100% of their operations. And the UN recently released a report that found invertebrate pollinator species, including bees and butterflies, 40% of them are on the brink of extinction. So if we lose bees and other pollinators, we lose these critical species which are very important for our food supply and for the health 
of our environment. So uh, we're here today to talk about how businesses, specifically supermarkets, can be part of the solution to helping reverse this decline and help maintain the bottom line of their businesses, which is the food that a lot of them sells. The reason that we're talking about bee health is because something is happening to make the bees sick, right? Something that we humans, we people have played a role in, Did my, uh, right? Right. So there's a number of different factors that are contributing to the decline of bee and pollinator health. Um, some of those factors include climate change, loss of habitat, uh, diseases, pests, and pesticides. And one of the key factors that Friends of the Earth and some of us focus on is the use of pesticides because pesticides are one of the factors that we have immediate control over. We can help eliminate and ban the use of pesticides that are key drivers in the decline of these pollinators. And so we are encouraging businesses, state, local, and federal governments to all take immediate action to ban the use of these toxic pesticides to help reverse the decline of bees and other pollinators. Is there evidence that the pesticides are playing a direct role in the health, the decline of the health of the bees? Yes. So uh, there's been thousands of studies that have been conducted which have found that pesticides are a contributing and significant factor contributing to the decline of bees and other pollinators. For example, there was a meta-analysis of more than 1,200 peer-reviewed studies released by the Task Force on Systemic Pesticides. It's a global group of independent scientists which confirmed that Systemic insecticides, including neonicotinoid pesticides, are a key factor in bee decline and are harming beneficial organisms essential to functional ecosystems and food production, including soil microbes, butterflies, earthworms, reptiles, and birds. And this task force called for immediate regulatory action to restrict neonicotinoid pesticides and other systemic pesticides to help ensure that we are protecting biodiversity in our ecosystems. For us non-academic types, when you say a meta-analysis, are you talking about an analysis of multiple studies? Yes. So they analyzed over 1,200 peer-reviewed studies, so that included studies that were conducted by independent researchers, universities, as well as the pesticide industry that manufactures these pesticides. So they reviewed all of these different studies, over 1,200 different studies, and came to this conclusion. So a lot of people who have been researching this topic agree that these pesticides are killing off the bees. Did I understand correctly? Exactly, yes. Where are these pesticides for, forgive me for sounding obtuse, but for those of us who are far removed from the food that we eat, many of us just go to the store and assume that it appears magically in the store shelves. Where do these pesticides come into contact with the bees? How does that happen? Mm -hmm. So these pesticides are systemic. So what that means is that when they're applied either to a plant or to the soil, they'll stick around in our environment for a long time. They can be there for a few months to as long as, in some cases, 19 years. Neonicotinoid insecticides, for example, can stick around in our environment for as long as 19 years. So what that means is that they enter the plant either um, through the application of soil or as a coating on the seed, and they'll enter the plant, make their way through the roots, leaves of the plant, and then make their way into the nectar and pollen of a plant and are expressed out into the plant. So when bees or other pollinators go to the plant to pollinate them, they come into contact with that pesticide when they're pollinating the plant. For earthworms, soil microbes, um, 
aquatic insects or, or species, they come into contact with the pesticide through it being in our soil or running off into our water. So there's a lot of different ways because these pesticides are very pervasive, they stay in our environment for so long, different species come into contact with these pesticides at different times. And these pesticides, because they stick around, it also means when our food is grown, they stick around on our food. Friends of the Earth did a study in February testing foods that kids and families typically eat, so Cheerios, apples, applesauce, spinach, beans, and found residues of different pesticides, including neonicotinoids, a class of pesticides called organophosphates that's linked to brain damage in kids and children, and glyphosate, which is uh, linked to cancer. Uh, And so that means that these pesticides, again, stick around, and then those residues are on the food that a lot of us are eating when we go to the when we buy and purchase food at the grocery stores. Let's get to that part about the grocery stores in a second, just to make sure that I understood how the pesticides make their way to the bees and the pollinators. It sounds like it's similar to us eating foods that are toxic or drinking water that is toxic the way that the pollinators are getting the pesticides, meaning they're eating or being exposed to the plants that have the pesticides that have gone through their system. Right, exactly. Um, so, yeah, they mostly are get coming into contact through the pesticides when they are pollinating these plants. And so when that happens, do the pollinators just kind of keel over and die, or is this a cumulative effect and maybe they die a week later, or I'm not sure what the life of the pollinators is, but is it immediate? It, it can be both. So when pest, when pollinators come into contact with these pesticides, they can either die immediately or sort of a delayed mortality. So it, the pesticides will do things like weaken their immune system, which makes them more susceptible to diseases or other stressors. It will make them lose their memory, make it hard for them to navigate. And so it over time, it will weaken the bees, and then they essentially die. But these pesticides are really toxic. So, for example, the neonicotinoid insecticide, just one seed coated in one of those, in, uh, with these insecticides, is enough to kill a songbird. So sometimes there's, these seeds are, uh, especially for the production of corn and soy, um, seeds are... Uh, a significant percentage of our seeds are coated in neonicotinoid insecticides. Over 95% of our conventional corn seeds are coated in neonicotinoids, and then 40 to 70% of our conventional soybean seeds are coated in neonicotinoids. And so when they're planted in a field, it's easy for birds to come into contact and eat those seeds, and that's enough to just kill them outright. These are also toxic to farm workers in addition to being toxic to pollinators. That was the next thing that I was going to ask. And so we are being exposed to these same pesticides, either for farm workers directly in the field, which I imagine because of the immediacy is so easy to identify. But this is reaching, it must be reaching consumers. Is that right? Yeah, so um, these pesticides, as Lisa said, are extremely toxic for human health. They're linked to a number of different uh, diseases and human health impacts, such as causing brain damage in children, um, cancer, Parkinson's disease, um, learning disabilities. And that means that farm workers who are working in the fields uh, producing and cultivating the food that we all eat are really on the front lines of exposure to these really toxic pesticides. Um, And that's particularly unsafe for pregnant women or their children who are are accompanying them or around them, live and work around these um, agricultural fields. And then for uh, people that are um, eating these foods, again, there's residues of these pesticides on our foods, so these small exposures really matter and add up. And we know there's studies Um, that have found that cumulative exposure to these toxic pesticides really matter. And so having a little bit of exposure here and there um, 
through our food over time can can create a problem too. And just to sort of highlight, glyphosate is one example of just how toxic these pesticides are. So glyphosate is manufactured by Monsanto. It's the active ingredient in Roundup. It's the most widely used herbicide in the world. It's uh, a lead contributor for the decline of monarch butterflies, but it's also really, really toxic for human health. Right now there's over 13,000 people, primarily farmers, who've been, uh, and groundskeepers, who've been using and exposed to this pesticide over many years, frequently, who are all suing Monsanto because they believe their exposure to glyphosate caused their cancer. And of the three cases that have been considered so far, all three of them have resulted in courts ruling that, yes, these pesticides did contribute and cause the plaintiff's cancer. Where do they come from? Are these synthetic chemicals that are manufactured in a plant somewhere in the U.S.? Uh, Yeah, so these pesticides are manufactured um, both in the U.S. and in other countries around the world. Um, And uh, the companies produce a number of different products, both for agricultural use and then also for home use. So people could get these products for, in some cases, to use in their own backyard. So a lot of people um, use Roundup um, in their their own backyards to manage their own gardens and, and grounds. Are these the same chemicals that are causing all of these blooms? I'm not sure if it's a, the term applies to all of this, but, for example, we're seeing blooms, algae blooms in several parts of the country. In Florida, it's been a big issue. In the Gulf of Mexico, it's mm-hmm. resulted in many deaths. Are these the same pesticides that are the behind, for example, the algae bloom in Lake Okeechobee in Florida? I'm not familiar with the exact pesticides that they found from some of those algae blooms. I know a lot of that was, um, I think, partially from fertilizer use, but um, I think their pesticides in general can have some of these negative environmental impacts. So it is possible that they help contribute to some of those algae, some of the algae blooms we're seeing all over the country, including in Florida. So if these chemicals are, the pesticides, are killing the pollinators, making farmers and farm workers, people on the front lines of our food supply domestically, and eventually the consumers ill, why are they still legal? Lisa, do you want to take that one? Sure. Yeah, I think that um, in the, <laughs> I think that the the companies that manufacture them and sell them have uh, outsized political power, and they have been able to persuade the federal government to uh, not regulate them, and in fact to to roll back regulations. Um, and they've also been able to put out a lot of junk science, much like the tobacco industry has, um, trying to, uh, no pun intended, sow the seeds of doubt around the impact of neonicotinoids and other toxic pesticides. Despite the overwhelming evidence that you're talking about, 1,200 peer-reviewed studies, that there seems to be no doubt that this is the case, right? Correct. So what can – and let me go back a step. Are organic foods also exposed to these pesticides? I know it sounds very obvious, but apparently organic doesn't mean what we think it means. Tell us a little bit about that, if you would. So organic uh, production excludes the use of synthetic pesticides and fertilizers uh, and uh, genetically modified organisms. So organic production does not include the use of these pesticides we've been talking about, clopyrifos, glyphosate, neonicotinoids. Um, So organic production is uh, a lot better, safer for 
our environment, for farm workers, farmers who are producing our food, and for consumers. And so anybody who can't afford to buy organic foods or doesn't want to, if I'm understanding what we're discussing here, is very likely being exposed to the pesticides because they're ubiquitous. Right. So organic um, is, there's a certification process to ensure that it was produced um, with the integrity uh, and by the rules of the organic standards. Um, And unless other food, um, other food doesn't necessarily, isn't, unless it, if it doesn't contain the organic label, you can't be sure that those pesticides weren't used. But one of the things some of us and Friends of the Earth is doing is urging retailers to eliminate and commit to eliminating the use of these toxic pesticides in its food in its conventional food supply chain. So it's non-organic supply chain. So we're really urging um, companies, all of the leading supermarkets, to commit to not sell food produced with these pesticides because it's safer for pollinators, it's safer for people, and it's safer for our, our environment. And how's that working out? Well, um, we were actually just at the Kroger's um, shareholder meeting. Lisa, you want to report back on what happened? Sure. So um, some of us uh, members have filed a shareholder proposal to be voted on at by, uh, by Kroger shareholders uh, three years in a row. And the uh, percentage of shareholders that have been supporting this proposal uh, has gone up. So now it's one in three shareholders who support uh, a move to have the board of directors be chaired by an independent director instead of the CEO being his own boss. And this is connected to the issue we're discussing about pollinators uh, because Kroger so far has refused to follow the lead of other retailers and uh, commit to sourcing its produce from a supply chain that does not use these toxic chemicals. Um, Kroger did put out a pollinator protection policy the day before their shareholder meeting, um, which takes some steps towards uh, protecting pollinators, but does not go far enough. And Kroger, for those who maybe are not familiar with the name, is a chain, one of the largest chains of supermarkets in the country, right? That's correct. It's it's the largest supermarket in the United States. And they're a publicly traded company. Correct. What, What does that mean, that the largest publicly traded supermarket chain in the country is still selling products that have pesticides in them, basically, that are killing the pollinators and potentially also everybody in the process is being affected. It means that they uh, are reluctant to take the steps necessary to protect the food supply because, as Tiffany mentioned, if the pollinators go away, you know, uh, one in every three bites of food is dependent on pollinators. And so there will be less food for all of us to eat and there will be less food for Kroger to sell if this happens. But because um, they are able to externalize the social cost of, a, of the, the reduction in the pollinator population, they're able to continue, continue and try to keep operating under the status quo. What can the average person do to stay out of harm's way for starters and for those who are so inclined to take perhaps a more proactive role? Um, Well, I'll start off, and Tiffany, you can add on to that. I think one thing people can do is to, if you shop at Kroger, to speak with the store manager and express your concern about uh, the presence of neonicotinoids and other toxic pesticides in in the produce supply chain. you could consider shopping at one of the other retailers that uh, has committed to eliminate these from the supply chain. And I'm sure Tiffany has some other suggestions as well. Yeah, I mean, I think all of that is right. Um, really, consumers directly talking to to their local Kroger store um, and cor- Kroger corporate headquarters is one of the best ways to um, demonstrate that consumers 
care about this issue and they want Kroger to make these changes. Um, so emailing the company, calling the company, talking to the local store manager when you go and shop at Kroger are all helpful ways. Um, Friends of the Earth and some of us and other organizations have all organized um, weeks of action at different times um, over the years where consumers um, on a specific day and time all uh, deliver letters to their local Kroger-owned store. We're probably going to be planning some follow-up actions um, this summer and into the fall for consumers to go and do that. Um, talking about this issue on social media, if you're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and making sure you tag Kroger so that they see um, your concerns and how you feel about this issue. All of these are ways that um, everyone can help make sure that Kroger uh, makes these changes in its supply chain to help improve um, and make sure that the food it's selling is safe, healthy, um, and really good for, for pollinators, people, and, and the planet. Is there a list of stores outside of Kroger, which we now know still carries foods with pesticides, but you mentioned shop somewhere else. Is there a list that our listeners can go to to find out what their options are at the local level? Um, you know, so Friends of the Earth um, has put together a scorecard several for several years that looks at the 25 of the top food retailers, um, and Kroger's on that list, um, but other big companies are um, graded in the scorecard on what they're doing in terms of pesticide reduction, organic offerings, and transparency. And so um, companies included in that list are Whole Foods, uh, Walmart, Costco, Albertson, Safeway, um, Aldi, and you can go on and see what companies have or haven't done on these issues. And it's really a, a mixed bag, but one of the, the things that we found from doing this scorecard is overwhelmingly uh, supermarkets are failing on uh, reducing pesticides in their supply chain. The only companies that have made some type of commitment or statement around pesticide reduction of the companies we've looked at are Aldi, Costco, and Whole Foods. So those are three of the companies that have, have taken some steps on this issue. Now Kroger has done a little bit. Um, none of them have gone as far as we'd like, but they are at least starting to address this issue in their supply chain, so it's a good first step. Um, and then these companies have all done um, a variety of, of different things to make organic offerings available and affordable to their consumers. So um, consumers can can go and take a look at the Friends of the Earth scorecard. It's called Swarming the Isles. Um, but the other ways um, outside of uh, these supermarkets is really trying to support um, local businesses um, in your area, so smaller supermarket chains, um, far, direct directly support farmers through farmers markets um, or other other areas where farmers are selling um, their products and and um, produce that they've grown and really trying to support uh, local production and local ideally local organic production um, is one of the best ways to help um, uh, help make these changes widespread you mentioned farmers markets and other producers, local producers, I've encountered a number of sellers in the farmer's markets, for example, or even produce vendors who say that they're not certified organic because that is a very expensive and time-consuming process, but that they're following organic principles in the farming process. Is mm -hmm. there something you can tell us about that? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of farmers who are farming in organic or agroecological um, or sort of ecologically sustainable ways and um, may not have necessarily the organic seal, but are still doing um, farming and practices that are really beneficial to our environment and public health. So really the best way to support those farmers is talking to them directly, having a conversation with um, the people that grow your food about how they grow it, 
um, so that you can really be informed about what they are or aren't using, what the practices are, and then um, if they're do if they're growing food in the in a way that you support, making sure that you support them by purchasing what they're growing. What about the rest of the food cycle, as it were? A lot of people eat out, so they're not necessarily buying food at the grocery store or not all of the food that they consume. Uh, children are getting food from their schools oftentimes. Parents and children are eating out at restaurant chains and catered events and so forth. Uh, what can you tell us about that and the food that they're getting? is Does it have pesticides, et cetera? Um, yeah, unfortunately, most um, – School food service providers or providers that have supplied to, to restaurants um, haven't really made similar commitments. But, again, there are, there are a couple to highlight. So Cisco um, is a company that helps provide um, food to some of these uh, larger institutions. They've worked with their supply, supply chain on um, adopting an integrated pest management system, um, so trying to reduce pesticides in their supply chain. Um, so there is some work being done. Again, it's really um, important to to really talk with restaurants directly um, about where they're sourcing. Some restaurants have increasingly started to share um, what items are organic on their menu, where they're if they're sourcing locally, which farms they're supporting, and so the best way consumers can help make a difference is to have conversations with their institutions with restaurants or other places where they're eating to help try to make these changes um, about those locations. Lisa, do you have anything else to add? Um, not about that. I was just going to say, though, it might be interesting to talk about um, how neonicotinoids are regulated in the EU, um, because I think that that demonstrates a level of seriousness uh, that's really called for in this case, right? Absolutely. Go ahead. Um, so, Tiffany, you probably know more about this, but I, I know that um, the EU has has banned neonicotinoids, right, um, and is ro- rolling out that ban banned for outside use. Yeah, they are. And, you know, the European Union, different countries within the European Union have all taken different steps to try to um, ban the use of neonicotinoids and glyphosate and other pesticides. And one of the reasons they're so much stronger than the U.S. in this is that they tend to take the precautionary approach. So they're looking at at science and studies ahead of time to try to uh, make sure that um, they are being as proactive as possible to not bring toxic pesticides to market if they're going to have or wreak havoc on our environment and public health, whereas the United States tends to really takes a reactive approach. So the vast majority of pesticides that are registered for use in the U.S. are registered under what we call conditional registration. So what that means is that um, the manufacturer of a pesticide, Bayer, Monsanto, Dow DuPont, they um, will give studies that the uh, company has conducted themselves to EPA to say that based on their own analysis, the pesticide is safe and should be registered for use. Of course, these companies have a vested interest in demonstrating that these products are safe because they want to sell them and they want to make money off of selling them. Um, So in about, I think it's uh, most registered pesticides go onto market under this conditional registration process. And then until EPA determines that they've had um, a significant impact or created significant harm, then they'll just keep them on the market and their, uh, over time their registration um, is just changed to approved, regular regular approval. And so unfortunately in the case of neonicotinoids where there's clearly studies that have demonstrated they're harmful, they should be taken off the market based on EP, the way EPA registers and handles pesticides, they're not um, going to take the same, have yet to take the same steps that the European Union has done, which they they should be doing, like Lisa said. And what that means is that it is possible to farm without these pesticides and still make a profit. Right. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, or get the studies show organic farmers um, 
have uh, larger earnings than conventional farmers, and it's more more profitable long term for organic farmers. So um, there's definitely an opportunity for for farmers who are struggling right now with with our economy um, and with production to hopefully sort of create in a, in a way like a new green, not even new, but a green job where they're able to make money, um, sell to consumers because there is strong consumer demand for organic products, um, and really at the same time continue to be stewards of, of our environment and help protect human health and the environment and the ecosystems we all need and depend on. What about our neighbors? We, a lot of our produce here, beyond what we produce domestically, comes from Mexico and Canada. What are they doing? So Canada uh, has proposed banning the use of, of neonicotinoids and taking similar steps as the European Union. And I am not sure exactly what Mexico is doing on some of these specific pesticides. Um but but Canada has taken steps to try to restrict their use. So for the moment, unless it's organic, if it comes from the U.S., Mexico, or Canada, it probably has these pesticides. Right. That is my understanding. What about the food that the animals eat, you know, for those people who are listening to us and say, well, I don't eat vegetables, so I don't care anyway. But the, the produce are also fed to the animals that then people eat. Does, do those pesticides make it through the process, you know, of the animal consuming it? And does it reach a human in that way? Yeah, so a lot of the, the grain um, that is produced for, for animal feed, um, specifically corn and soy, is produced with these pesticides. So as I mentioned, 95% of the corn, conventional corn seed in the U.S. is coated with neonicotinoids. 40 to 70% of conventional soybean seeds are coated with neonicotinoids. So uh, they're getting into our environment, and then, of course, these animals are um, consuming feed that likely has these pesticide residues. Um, and, uh, I, I think we can sort of assume that likely those residues will continue to stick around. I don't know the exact, any, uh, can think of some specific studies off the top of my head, um, where those, there's, um, they're definitely, they're there. Anyway, I don't want to take up too much time. Lisa, do you have other things to add? Yeah, I was just going to say that there's an organization called Moms Across America, and they did a test for glyphosate, which is Roundup, um, and found it in uh, human breast milk. And so they think that it's reaching moms because of the meat that they're eating. And, And babies. Right, moms and babies, of course. Yep. This This sounds... And just out of control, is it true that there's also pesticides on public lands and parks that's killing bees? Yeah, I think that different um, different states and towns are trying to regulate the use of glyphosate on their parks. Um, I don't know what the um, I don't know what the federal policy is on that. Yeah, there has been a lot of um, universities and cities and towns that have all taken action, action to restrict or ban the use of neonicotinoids or glyphosate on their prop, on their um, property. Under the Obama administration, um, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service announced that it was going to be banning the use of neonicotinoids on all wildlife refuge lands. But the Trump administration, like many environmental policies, rolled that decision back. So that means that refuge lands, which are supposed to be safe um, for people, safe for the environment, safe for uh, species and, and wildlife, now those areas, um, neonicotinoids can be used on them. Why do they need to use pesticides in these parks? Aren't they supposed to be wild life areas, what is the need for pesticides? They're not growing anything, right? 
There really isn't a need for pesticides. It's a great question. Um, there's a little bit of agriculture production on those parks and lands, but uh, there's really there's alternatives that are safe, effective, better for for the environment, for public health, and so there's no reason why the Trump administration should have reverse this decision. All that it demonstrates is that the Trump administration continues to prioritize the profits of the of corporations and pesticide companies over doing its job and protecting uh, the American people. What can the average business person do, so beyond just the average person, but people who are in a corporate environment or business owners, uh, people who are thought leaders or community leaders, what can they do to affect this process? What can they do to help make the food supply safer, to help keep these bees and pollinators healthy so that our long-term food supply is safe? Lisa, you wanna you wanna start? I think that um, you know contacting elected officials uh, to express concern about the lack of um, policies is a good idea. I think also um, you know the the measures we spoke about before, talking to the retailers. Um, where wherever people spend their money, you know they should be talking to those. Um, those retailers about how how their food is being kept safe. As a business person, is there a way to be an even louder voice, if you will, uh, saying that they are going to purchase, for example, products from companies that are not supplying, that are not selling pesticide-infused foods, um, is, is that an effective policy? That's that's extremely effective. Uh, I mean, that's what really drives how our food is grown is um, are the uh, the purchasing policies of these giant retailers, uh, and that's why we think it's also you know it's a reputational risk uh, for shareholders of a company like Kroger if retailers continue to source uh, source and sell produce that has these toxic chemicals in it. Are there symptoms that are clearly identified in whether it's farm workers and people in the supply chain or the end consumers that have been directly linked to the consumption of these pesticides? You know, can someone kind of look at their arm and see a boil and say, oh, that was a pesticide? Um. There are um, a lot of stories from farm workers who are uh, who are exposed to pesticides in the fields and have uh, symptoms directly after application. So, for example, there was a recent report in California where farm workers were exposed to pesticides, and some of them immediately um, started having symptoms where they got rashes, they got sick, they started coughing. Um, there's been direct pesticide poisonings um, where farm workers have um, been poisoned after application and exposure to pesticides. So it is absolutely possible to see the direct correlation between pesticide application and its really harmful, detrimental impacts on public health. Now, beyond the farmers, are there any studies that link the food consumption. So the application is immediate and easy to to link because, of course, they're in the environment. Beyond that, are there any studies that can link someone getting sick or someone's condition worsening, perhaps someone who's already in a weak condition and is consuming foods with pesticides, becoming sicker, anything of that kind? Um, so there are studies that sort of that have looked at um, how uh, how these residues show up in our bodies. So, for example, there was a study done 
um, at Columbia University, um, which uh, tested pregnant women um, for their residues of pesticide exposure. So just through what they were eating and what they found was um, residues of clopyrifos, a brain damaging pesticide, um, uh, in the samples that they took from some of these pregnant women. Um, so, and then what we know is that there can be exposures um, to these pesticides can lead to things like brain damage. I think there was a recent study um, which saw a direct correlation between um, pesticide residues and, um, and uh, exposure to pesticides and then um, an increase in rates of children born with um, learning disabilities, autism, um, and ADHD. So there are studies that demonstrate these links. Um, there's even um, a study that was done uh, looking at the residues of some of these pesticides in dust. So, for example, in the case of clopyrifos, clopyrifos um, was banned by the EPA for indoor use in 2000. Um, years later, a study was conducted um, looking at pesticide residues in dust on the uh, inside the homes of um, New Yorkers. Uh, specifically, I think in the Bronx, if, I, if I'm remembering correctly, and what they found was that there are residues of clopyrifos in the dust that was collected for this study. So we know that there can be exposure to these pesticides through not only our food, but air that we all breathe, water that we all drink. And if there's even long-term residues of these pesticides in our homes, um, just through things like dust, those are other ways where people are being exposed to these pesticides. Why would someone be using a pesticide indoors? Is this sort of like in a personal, like an indoor garden? Why would someone be using pesticides inside their home? So there can be pesticides um, on things like uh, dog collars, um, tick, or um, pest treatment in abatement programs inside people's homes. So, for example, neonicotinoids are commonly found in dog collars and tick treatment um, and in things like ant traps. And so those are those are um, areas where uh, those those products could leave residues of pesticides inside people's homes. Also, a lot of um a lot of houseplants um, have been treated with neonicotinoids. And one of the advances that uh, Friends of the Earth has made is getting some big retailers, including Kroger, to stop selling houseplants that are treated with them. So when you buy the plant at the store, it's already been treated before you even bring it home? Correct. Wow. I mean, when you talked about insects that... I didn't translate that to ant traps or plants. I thought of something more like permethrin for people who are going to malaria-exposed places. Yeah, no, I mean, they can definitely be in houseplants, like Lisa said. So um, Friends of the Earth, has, with some of us, has done a couple of different studies um, testing um, mostly bee-friendly garden plants, but we know that there's other types of plants, too, for their residues of of uh, insecticides, so neonicotinoids, and found that over half of the plants that we tested contain levels of pesticides that are enough to harm or kill bees. So even just inside our homes, um, our houseplants could be treated or grown with these pesticides. And that's also another problem for farm workers. There's a lot of farm workers who grow plants um, inside greenhouses, and so that's a contained area where they're really exposed to pesticides and can and can have really serious impacts from that exposure. So what should you do if you want to buy a plant? How do you know whether it has a pesticide or not? So same, I mean, just like our food, it's important to, if you can, try to purchase organic plants and starts or talk to the the growers of those plants to find out what was or wasn't used when they grew the plants so that you're really informed about what you what you're purchasing and what you're bringing into your home.
Does that also go, for example, to grass, to lawns when they come and bring sod to your home? You don't know what was done to that before it arrived. Would that also have the potential to have pesticides? Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Any of the soil, um, turf, things that you buy or that you might hire someone to, to come and work on at your house, all of those are places where pesticides could be applied. And so it's, again, really important for you to, to talk to the suppliers that you're purchasing from, um, any contractor that you're using, um, to make sure that you know what they are or aren't using. Now that brings me to a different perspective. Before we were talking about exposure for farm workers and people in the supply chain because they were in direct contact. And then we were talking about consuming the pesticides in the food, either for the pollinators or for the end consumers. But so now we're a little bit further removed and we're talking about lawns and houseplants. What level of contact is necessary in order for these pesticides to enter your system? Is it casual contact? Is it breeding? If you could tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, sure. So uh, these pesticides could enter your enter your system any of those ways. So they they you can be exposed to pesticides through your drinking water. Um, through lawn and gardens, um, a lot of stu- a lot of pesticides are applied at universities and parks um, and grounds. So anytime you're walking down the street, you go to a park, um, you could be exposed to pesticides in our air. We can get exposed to pesticides um, in the food that we eat. So there's a lot of different ways in our everyday lives that we can be exposed to pesticides. So it's not just eating them or touching them, but you could also be breathing in the pesticides. Right, exactly. So the study I mentioned where pesticides are found in dust, I mean, you could be breathing that in in your house where there might be dust with pesticide residues. Or um, if, for example, you're near a park where they may have um, recently um, applied pesticides, there could be pesticide residues in the air that you get exposed to. What is the greatest threat to the average person? It's, it's, some people listening to us are shaking their heads, I'm sure, and saying, oh, come on, just because I walk through the public park, I'm not going to be getting pesticide from breathing in the public park for 15 minutes. Is it really, is it really an issue? What is the greatest likelihood that you're – what is the greatest source of pesticides for the average person? Well, I mean, there, I've talked with a lot of students who on their campuses, um, you know, pesticides are applied to their lawns to keep them really green, and they sit on the lawn, um, their school uh, grounds a couple days later, and they feel kind of itchy, and they feel like they're having um, a reaction to likely pesticides that were applied. But for the average person, I mean, all of us eat probably, in most cases, two to three times a day, most people, or more. And so because pesticides are used in most all of the food that is grown, um, other than sort of organic or ecologically sustainably produced food, um, that's one of the, the biggest places where we can all be exposed to pesticides. For those among our listeners who are stockholders, Is there anything that they can do? Should they be divesting themselves of stock from these companies in protest? Uh, What's the best approach? Well, at the, uh, you know, so Monsanto, which is the manufacturer of Roundup and glyphosate, uh, they were acquired by Bayer, which is a German company. They make the, you know, Bayer baby aspirin aspirin and all that. So uh, now that... um, U.S. litigation is is actually going forward regarding glyphosate. Um, there was a uh, kind of a revolt at the Bayer uh, shareholder meeting this year, where shareholders didn't approve the performance of of management, and that's kind of unheard of. Um, shareholders can uh, write to companies and ask them to. Uh, to move forward with adopting more uh, pollinator-friendly policies uh, and getting, you know, 
getting pesticides out of their food supply chain. Uh, retailers like to talk about their organic uh, product lines because it, it is a growing segment, but that's not the same thing as eliminating pesticides from the entire supply chain. Uh, so we're not recommending uh, right now divestment, um, but we are recommending that um, that it's in the best interest of both the retailers and obviously the shareholders of those retailers to uh, to put pressure on them to really pay attention to this issue and to, and to be more proactive about it instead of waiting for government regulations. Don't get rid of your stock just yet. Well, but uh, use the platform that being a shareholder gives you to uh, to uh, speak, to, to, to exercise your your right to uh, to have the company listen to you, and that's that's uh, that's why we you know we worked with uh, some our members who are shareholders of Kroger to file the shareholder proposal, and we would welcome other Kroger shareholders as well. What suggestions would you share with our listeners who want to gain a better understanding of the issues here um, from the beginning, meaning the impact that it has on the bee health and pollinators to the food supply, to the farmers? I mean, there are a lot of industries that could be impacted in a profound way. One of them that comes to mind, for example, is wine. You were talking about California earlier. Um, Is this something that affects them? Yeah, absolutely. So there's been a number of studies that have looked at pesticide residues on wine and beer. And what they found is that there's glyphosate residues showing up in beer. There's uh, neonicotinoid residues showing up in wine. And so absolutely um, manufacturers, producers of alcohol um, can all do their part in trying to make sure that they're um, growing and sourcing um supplies for for alcohol production that are free of the use of these pesticides that are not um, uh, made with genetically modified ingredients and that's a way that they can help um, be a solution to this problem too. Where can our listeners go to learn more about the issues, these big picture issues that we're talking about and specifically because I imagine for most people the main concern is is to their health? Is this making them sick? Even before the concept of are we going to have food to eat in the future, they're probably wondering, well, am I breathing pesticides? Am I sitting on a lawn that has pesticides? Does my water have pesticides? Where can they go to learn more about this and what they might be able to do? Sure. So they can go to the Friends of the Earth and the Some of Us website um, to learn more. We both have resources on our websites about the issue, um, articles, materials, and ways that people can take action in their own backyards, their communities, and also um, helping put encourage and, and demand that supermarkets and other retailers take action and that our state, local, and federal governments take action too. Um, there's also a lot of great movies um, and books um, about these topics that people can read and watch. Um, for Friends of the Earth, our website is foe.org. And Lisa, do you have anything else to add about some of us and where people can get involved there? Yeah, our website is S-U-M-O-F-U-S dot O-R-G. Also, you know, I think that if you were going to start out with one publication, Tiffany would probably be swarming the aisles. Is that right? Yes, yes. Some of our listeners may be thinking that there's an ulterior motive here behind this, that you have a product that you're selling or that there's this is generating millions of dollars for your companies. If you would just take a couple of minutes to tell us about Some of Us and Friends of the Earth. Sure. Some of Us is a nonprofit. Uh, We're a global nonprofit with about 15 million members, and most of our funding comes from individual donations from people who who don't want to see the bees disappear, people who care about uh, climate change and human rights and other issues related to corporate accountability. 
And what's your mission, Lisa? Our mission is to bring together uh, members of civil society, uh, consumers, shareholders, and workers to act collectively to hold corporations accountable for uh, the damaging things that are being done to to people and the planet. Tiffany? Uh, Friends of the Earth is also a nonprofit, non-governmental organization. Um, Friends of the Earth is part of a network of 75 organizations uh, in it, part of in 75 different countries around the world. Our mission is to defend the environment and champion a healthy and just world. We have 1.9 million members and supporters across the U.S. working on today's most urgent environmental issues, and uh, we have a strict policy that we don't take any corporate or government funding. So all of our funding comes from uh, foundations or our individual members and supporters. Um, so we don't have any sort of vet vested interest. Um, we really try to stay uh, neutral and um, transparent with all of the work that we do um, so that we can can achieve our mission, which is to defend the environment and champion a healthy and just world. Tiffany and Lisa, thank you for joining us from Washington, D.C. and Gardner, New York. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. Yes, thank you. Great to, great to join you. Thank you. And to our audience, you have been listening to Tiffany Fink-Haynes, who is Program Manager of Pesticides and Pollinators at Friends of the Earth, and Lisa Lindsley, who is Capital Markets Advisor at Some of Us, who discussed bee health and pollinators. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.